This is the Resonance AI Podcast, conversations about the future of media. Our 18th episode is the second part of our interview with Mark Hobick, the president of Variety Business Intelligence. And this part of the conversation begins with Mark explaining how his company is helping to highlight crucial information about diversity in Hollywood. There is huge, not only moral and ethical imperative for us to kind of meet the demand for this information, but there's also a very significant business revenue opportunity for getting this right. And, and to that end, the way we're approaching it, you got to get it, get it right. And so we've partnered with some of the, the biggest distribution and streaming platforms in the industry, the leading talent literary agencies, the National Diversity Council, we're talking to smaller production companies, larger production companies, and we've created an advisory board. Currently, demographic data in Hollywood and, and for really any industry, we all are using a kind of U.S. census uh, definitions and terms. And the U.S. census is problematic because it's very flat. It doesn't allow for an array of values. It tends to be, well, you're African-American, you're two-plus race, you're, you're Caucasian, you're non-Hispanic, you're Hispanic. You know, there's these categories that we're all very familiar with. Take somebody like Dwayne Johnson, who is Pacific Islander and African-American. And not only do we want to know what those two-plus races are, but we also want to know how does he identify. And that information takes a tremendous investment because nobody has it. Nobody's done it. And so that's what we're doing. And we've, we've been working at it for some time now. So, so we're, we're, we're ahead of that. I can tell you that many of the streamers rely on us as the industry source for this information. What we see is that the improved granularity and accuracy of demographic data is the only way for us to get the level of inclusion and racial equity. Not only that, LGBTQ, trans status, pronouns, how people identify themselves, all of these elements. Disability is something that people are very interested in. And when, when we talk about LGBTQ or disability or any of these factors, this is people that have self-identified publicly. So we're not guessing, outing people or something like that. We have sensitivity around it. But by improving the quality of the data set, you allow the streamers and the networks to really be able to lean into creating authentic content and making sure that uh, you're casting and you're hiring people that really genuinely know the stories of the, the people or the subject matter. And the reason this is succeeding is because entertainment companies have figured out finally that it makes sense financially. You know, there's, there's opportunity there. There's gold in them hills. <laughs> you know, there's just an ethical and social responsibility element that I'm so happy to see. I've been working in this industry for over 25 years. And in that time, I've never seen such an openness toward kind of solving the inequities that we see across our industry and, and across the country. And that doesn't mean that we're anywhere near solving it. I want to say, for the record, we've got a lot of work to do. But I think finally, 
there's an appetite to actually do the work. So it it's, makes me feel very optimistic about the future. Well, I can only imagine after 25 years in the industry, the unbelievable changes you've seen in representation of LGBTQ. You know, certainly like when you look at something like looking on HBO, there's a, a real interest in, hey, let's cast actors that are actually gay, you know, that can bring something to this story. And I think it really worked. You know, it, it's, they were able to portray part of their own kind of life experience through their characterization and, and their work. And, and it was, it's very compelling. Uh, but, you know, I, I also love, you look at something and, you know, an MRC series, The Great on Hulu. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a fantastic series. And uh, prior to Netflix, Bridgerton, it's totally colorblind casting in such a smart way. And that's the other side of this is that not only are we saying, hey, you know, let's be more authentic in the stories we tell and how we tell them, but let's also be willing to uh, be colorblind in our, our casting because why can't the Queen of England be black? And I think that's so refreshing and, and wonderful. So uh, I, I love that, the, the freedom that it kind of gives us from a storytelling perspective. So streaming wars, they are, we are all in it. It is, it is World War III in many ways. More streamers seem to be coming in every week and it just gets messier and we have more options and we have to decide what we want to see and there's more content than anyone could consume in a hundred lifetimes now. How much longer do you think this can go on until we start seeing some real winners and losers? Yeah, there's no way that they can all survive and there's going to be a tremendous amount of consolidation and things falling away by the wayside. And I, th I think the way a lot of executives kind of see the future or imagine the future is that streaming platforms will be the new cable networks and we'll actually have bundles and people will essentially be getting, you get Hulu, Netflix, ESPN, you know. Uh, Disney Plus and, you know, Apple all together. I think these things are, um, it's just a matter of time before that, that happens because that's how the consumer is going to want to be able to browse, you know, content. Because one of the challenges for companies like Netflix and, you know, if you get into kind of content discovery, and that's a big part of what we do as well, one of the big challenges is that those recommendation engines are limited based off of what's actually available within the library of that platform. Well, that's interesting because I feel like there is an assumption that at some point Paramount Plus will hemorrhage too many followers and it'll just shut down. But you see it as that library probably won't just disappear. That'll be absorbed by something. Yeah. And, and, you know, who's to say if, you know, Paramount Plus isn't the, you know, isn't the streamer to succeed, you know, it could be anywhere. Uh, but yeah, the content's not going away. This is just, I think all of the media companies need to, in an effort to kind of stay in the game, they need to have a distribution platform for streaming. And so that's why we see these moves and Sony is certainly investing in Crackle and, you know, all the studios are aligned out of necessity. They just have to. They had to show up to the party. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, and it's, it's a little bit of, it's like, you know, if you don't buy a ticket, you can't win. There's that element to it, but the content is always going to be 
available and and there's always going to be license fees generated by uh, distributing your content even if it's to other platforms so you have as you mentioned writers rooms earlier you know everything that goes into to creating a series to breaking story everything like that you know what it had been pre streaming i would assume back in the in the 90s we're looking at a dozen or fewer avenues for you to to be producing content for right if you think of, of on a, just the television side you know you had your broadcast networks then you had cable networks but not every cable network had scripted content as it's still today i think you're getting at that there's a just a plethora of opportunities from a writer perspective and an actor perspective but the downside is that the orders you know when you look at the streaming series the orders tend to be much shorter and so what's interesting for those of us that have colleagues in the creative arts who are you know tv writers or film writers etc the challenge for a lot of writers has been that they used to be able to sign on to a series and be doing 22 episodes you would work on that series for many years was a successful series and if it didn't succeed you'd go on to another series where you'd have these longer episodic orders the episodic orders have gotten shorter and shorter and as a result it's much more difficult for writers even with so much content being developed it's very difficult for writers to kind of string together work in the same fashion that they used to be able to you're sort of saying that for maybe back in the 90s, fewer writers were were employed, but those fewer writers were able to make a living. Yeah, people were able to make a living more easily in some respects because of this these smaller orders that we're seeing. I guess aside from the difficulty of getting it, you know, even having a, a year or two's worth of work for for a writer, what do you feel are the pros and cons of so many more opportunities to create content, but so much competition and, and, and the chance for your, your show to air, but a small percentage of what you would have had on an NBC, obviously. If your show, the show that you've been working on, you've fought and created and it's on Amazon Prime, it's never going to attain the kind of level of a breaking bad. So what, what do you think the trade-offs are of sort of the greater investment in more ideas, but the lack of attention that those ideas end up getting? I think it's, it's easier potentially to, to break into the business, but it's interesting that the opportunity though, what we see is that there's still a finite number of people that can really execute these series and create content, but both on film and, and, and television side, I should say. And so what happens is you have the Ryan Murphys and the Greg Berlantis and the Shonda Rhimes, and they become sort of factories where they're putting their stamp of approval on all the content that comes out, but they're essentially executive producing multiple shows per season. And so we're concentrating on really tried and true talent and expecting more and more from them and they have staff and and uh very talented people that work within their their ranks that are going to execute these shows but we've kind of entered the era of the you know super producer you know the, the super show creator 
where uh, they're responsible for much more content than we would have ever seen in the past from one company or one person. The Resonance AI Podcast is produced by Random Inkara and Shane Mailing. It's hosted and edited by Shane Mailing. And our music is by Damian Johnson. To learn more, go to ResonanceAI.com.